This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary Jewish issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. Item. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. A popular seasonal song in the non-Jewish world can now be applied to Hanukkah as well. It, too, is beginning to look a lot like Christmas, down to the strings of blue and white lights hanging in so many Jewish windows and sold in many Judaica shops as well as in such stores as Bed Bath & Beyond, Kohl's, Lowe's, even on Amazon. There even is a package of dreidel and menorah outdoor laser projection lights available for sale. At least one Jewish entrepreneur some years back, an Orthodox rabbi no less, who was in the business of selling such lights, said he saw nothing wrong with them, according to an Associated Press article at the time, referring to those who purchased what he admittedly called Christmas-like lights. The vendor said, quote, They, meaning the purchasers, want the spirit, the fun, and the joy of it, meaning the holiday season, presumably. Jews have always historically, from my perspective, taken and adapted from local cultures and vice versa, unquote. Then there's this item, an alumnus of Beth Medrash Gavoha, a yeshiva in Lakewood, New Jersey, that enjoys high standing in the ritually rigid non-Hasidic world, self-published a book some years ago that can be summed up by this quote, The difference between the people of Israel and the nations of the world is an essential one. The Jew, by his source and his very essence, is entirely good. The non-Jew, by his source and in his very essence, is completely evil. This is not simply a matter of religious distinction, but rather of two completely different species, unquote. You heard that right. The book basically sets forth a race-based theory of Jewish supremacy, Jewish racial supremacy. When it first appeared in 2003, it was adorned with what the forward newspaper at the time said were, quote, flowery endorsements from the most revered religious scholars at the renowned Lakewood Yeshiva, unquote. Those endorsements, as it turns out, were made by rabbis who never actually read the book. I'll have more about that later. At the heart of both of these items rests a central question. How should Jews relate to the non-Jewish world? And how should they not relate to it? And so, the topic for this week is, how should we Jews relate to the non-Jewish world? The Jewish way of continuing this podcast would be to follow the dictum of Acharon Acharon Chaviv, which loosely translated means that the last point mentioned is the first one to be addressed. It's more appropriate, though, for this particular podcast to copy the practice of the other, as it were, by addressing the Hanukkah as Christmas issue first. That's because copying the other is precisely the issue here. Judaism has been against copying the other ever since Moses' time, although what's meant by the other may be of limited scope. Of immediate concern to Moses and to God, the ultimate author of the Torah, 
where the practices of Egypt and Canaan, the place from which Israel left and the place to which Israel was headed. Thus, we're told in Leviticus, in Sefer Vayikra, quote, After the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwell, you shall not do. And after the doings of the land of Canaan where I bring you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their laws, unquote. Leviticus also states, quote, and you shall not walk in the manners of the nation which I cast out before you, unquote. Deuteronomy, Sefer Dvarim, tells us the reason for this, quote, that you not be entrapped by following them, unquote. The prophet Ezekiel tells us that not heeding this warning is one of the reasons God caused the first temple to fall and the people to be exiled. Ezekiel has God saying to Israel, quote, You have not walked in my statutes, nor have you executed my judgments, but have done after the practices of the nations that are around you. Unquote. These verses led to a class of laws and regulations usually referred to as chukat hagoyim, or laws and customs of the nations, meaning every nation but our own. We're also a goy, by the way. The word means nation. It's not a disparaging term or wasn't meant to be. The Talmud's designation is Darche Ha'emori, the way of the Amorites, in which the Amorites stand in for the nations. In the Babylonian Talmud tractate Shabbat, one of the ways of the Amorite is an interesting one. A husband who wants to be called by his wife's name and she by his, apparently something that was done for good luck. In brief, banned are any chukat goyim that are idolatrous in nature or are based on superstition, provided that the superstition is rooted in pagan belief. Warding off the evil spirits among the gods is apparently behind the spousal name switching, which is why that's no longer included in the prohibition. Of course, if a law or custom has nothing to do with religious ritual or worship, then most authorities have no problem with our mimicking that behavior. The same holds true for superstitions that have no religious underpinnings. Not all authorities agree, however. In the more ritually rigid communities, for example, the mode of dress is deliberately designed not to be similar to the non-Jews even including an aversion to wearing ties in some traditions. Ironically, the mode of dress that is acceptable because it's truly Jewish actually is nothing of the sort. It harks back to the way Polish noblemen used to dress. Many of the rest of us also have clothing concerns, however. Some involve what not to wear. For example, wearing black as a sign of mourning apparently was an acceptable practice in Talmudic times as it is today. I said apparently because the practice is inferred from statements made by two sages, Rabbi Yanai and Simon the Righteous. For many centuries, however, wearing black clothing was frowned upon. While that has long broken down, wearing black armbands continues to be something not to do. At least one clothing concern may involve what to wear during prayer. The mandatory wearing of head coverings during worship services is a relatively new innovation. The codes, even including the authoritative Shulchan Aruch, 
contain no such mandate, although they suggest doing so out of respect for God. Whatever the basis actually was for it becoming mandatory, at least one 17th century authority ascribed it to the fact that non-Jews pray while bareheaded. Jews, therefore, were told to keep their heads covered so as not to copy the practice. Having laid the foundation, let's explore the Hanukkah as Christmas conundrum. On the one hand, we have a minor Jewish festival that involves only one ritual, the lighting of an eight-branched menorah, or Hanukkiah, preferably in front of one's door or at least in a window that can be seen by the neighbors. On the other, we have one of two major observances of Christianity, this one involving the birth of Christianity's titular founder. The actual founder was Paul, but that's for another podcast. There's no comparison between Christmas and Hanukkah, except that they fall out at about the same time in most years. Next year, for example, the last Hanukkah candle will be lit on Christmas night on December 25th. Among the traditions of Christmas is hanging wreaths on doors and in windows. Jews now hang cutouts of Hanukkiot in theirs. Decorating homes with all kinds of things, including strings of letters that spell Merry Christmas. Jews now decorate their homes with cutouts of dreidels and strings of letters that spell out Happy Hanukkah. And Christmas lights, for which we now have Hanukkah lights, usually strung in a Star of David pattern and even those outdoor laser lights I mentioned. There also now are Hanukkah lawn decorations to rival the front lawn Christmas displays. Let's be clear about this. Christmas is a religious holiday, and its customs and practices are meant to enhance the religious nature of that holiday. Although people may miss that point amid all the commercialism surrounding the observance. That makes the Christmas customs and traditions religious in nature, and therefore covered by the Chukat Goyim prohibition. In the specific case of the Christmas lights, one of three possibilities are the likeliest for the origin of the custom. One, decorating homes with candles and greenery were features of the very pagan winter solstice festival dedicated to Saturn that was celebrated by the Romans until it was transformed into Christmas. Two, the lights are meant to memorialize the Star of Bethlehem that supposedly foretold the event celebrated at Christmas. And three, Santa needs the lights to find the house. It thus would seem clear-cut. Celebrating Hanukkah this way violates the principle of Chukat Goyim. On the other hand, a Mishnaic-era text, the Tosefta, states that it's permissible to wish a non-Jew a happy holiday for the sake of peace, in other words, to maintain good relations with our non-Jewish neighbors. That brings me to the other item, the book that allegedly suggests that Jews are racially superior. Here are some of the choice arguments made in the book, as described by Drew University Professor Emeritus Alan Nadler, the former director of Drew's Jewish Studies program. Translations can be subjective, not what the original author actually meant. The book's title, for example, is Romemut Yisrael Ufarashad Hagalut, 
which Nadler explains could be translated in several ways, including the grandeur of Israel and the issue of exile, a not offensive title, and Jewish superiority and the question of exile, which is an offensive title. Nevertheless, the original author, I prefer not to name him, never disputed Nadler's interpretation, at least not that I'm aware of, and never disputed Nadler's summary of them. Among other things, to quote Nadler's summary, the book's author argues, quote, The differences between Jews and non-Jews are not religious, historical, cultural, or political. They are, rather, racial, genetic, and scientifically unalterable. The one group is at its very root, and by natural constitution, totally evil, while the other is totally good. Jewish successes in the world are completely contingent upon the failure of all other peoples. Only when the Gentiles face total catastrophe do the Jews experience good fortune. The Jews themselves brought about their own destruction during the Holocaust, since they arrogantly endeavored to overcome their very essence dictated by divine law by leaving their ghettos and trying to assimilate into Christian European society. The confrontational approach of the Zionists, their boycott of German products and anti-Nazi demonstrations in particular, only exacerbated the peril to European Jewry. For this, they were massacred by Hitler, who, while himself an evil person, was acting as God's agent in punishing the Jews, unquote. Statements such as these are not only deeply disturbing, there can be little doubt that they go against normative Jewish thinking on the matter. To be sure, there's much in the literature, starting with the Talmud, that denigrates the other. Much, if not most, of such statements, however, were written at times in history when we Jews were being severely oppressed by the non-Jewish majority. Within these statements are warnings against eating foods cooked by non-Jews or breads baked by them, against doing business with them on certain days, and about avoiding social contact with them at all costs. In some communities, if a non-Jew just touches an open bottle of wine, even today, it is no longer fit to be consumed. In other communities, Judaism's myriad laws of ethical business behavior are seen as excluding non-Jews, an odious interpretation that runs counter to many centuries of rabbinic rulings. At other times, the rabbinic comments were radically different. To avoid creating a conflict with some of the earlier negative statements, the rabbis narrowed the scope of the earlier comments to exclude Christians, and Muslims. For example, the chief rabbi of Lemberg, Poland in the mid-19th century wrote the following in his six-volume collection of responsa, Sho'el Umeshiv, asked and answered, quote, It is a general principle that wherever the Talmud or the commentaries speak in derogatory terms of heathens, the reference is to the ancient nations who did disgusting perversions and did not believe in divine providence. They are the antithesis of the nations existing today. These nations observe their religion. They are men of high ethical and moral standards who maintain a judicial system that punishes lawbreakers. Although their religion is far removed from our faith, 
God forbid that we should entertain even the slightest thought of disrespect. At present, when the nations follow the tenets of their religion, it is self-understood that we must promote their welfare and treat them with respect, unquote. Now let me return to those flowery endorsements this obnoxious book carries. They were written, as I noted earlier, by rabbis who had not actually read the book, at least not thoroughly or carefully. And at least one of those endorsements was quickly disavowed when the endorser was told what the book actually says. After admitting that he had not read the book carefully, this endorser said, quote, In looking at the specific points allegedly contained in the book, I can certainly tell you that they are not reflective of normative Jewish thought and are certainly not the philosophy of our Lakewood Yeshiva. Our philosophy asserts that every human being is created in the image of the Lord and the primacy of integrity and honesty in all dealings without exception. I strongly repudiate any assertions in the name of Judaism that do not represent and reflect this philosophy, unquote. The trouble is that there are many Jews, particularly in the ritually rigid communities, that hold views similar to this author's views. Emulating the practices of non-Jews, therefore, may be the least of our problems. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I do hope you come back for my next podcast in two weeks. I'm taking off for Thanksgiving. And I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shamai.org, www.shamai.org, and email me, please. If you don't get the Jewish Standard but want to read my columns, go to the columns page of my website. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy. Enjoy Thanksgiving and Hanukkah, which begins nine days from now. And of course, stay safe.